0: In medieval France, the four days immediately following Christmas were reserved to celebrate the church's clergy and choir. The deacons and priests were celebrated first, December 26th and 27th. The choir boys were celebrated fittingly and somewhat ominously on December 28th, the Feast of the Holy Innocents. In December 29th, the Feast of the Circumcision, was reserved for the subdeacons, the lowest class in the clerical hierarchy. The subdeacons, usually held under the strict rule of their superiors, had a day in which they were given more or less free reign to do what they wanted. And so the Feast of the Circumcision became known as the Feast of Fools. The Feast of Fools was celebrated in many and various ways. In one French cathedral, the day began with the election of a a Pope of Fools, chosen from the lower clergy. The Pope of Fools was allowed to read a prayer from the bishop's chair, and the higher-ranking clergy had to bow before him to receive his blessing. In other places, the celebrations were more raucous. In 1445, the theology faculty at the University of Paris, who were like the McKinsey consultants for medieval Catholicism, wrote a letter to their bishops complaining about the Feast of Fools. Quote, Quote, Priests and clerks may be seen wearing masks and monstrous visages at the hours of office. They sing wanton songs. They run and leap through the church. Finally, they drive about the town engaging in performances with indecent gestures and verses scurrilous and unchaste. Now, it would be easy to dismiss all of this as a medieval curiosity or just the subdeacons blowing off some steam after Christmas. But there's actually something very significant happening here. One of the more revealing documents we have from the Feast of Fools comes from the 12th century when Bishop Odo of Sully, who was outside Paris, tried to crack down on its celebration by banning, quote, rhythmic poetry, impersonations, and strange lights. My favorite one is impersonations because the implication is clearly that they're doing impressions of him. But then he added something that should give us pause. He said that when the subdeacons celebrated Mass on the Feast of Fools, they were only allowed to sing the Magnificat five times. So to ask the obvious question, why? Why did these subdeacons sing the Magnificat at least half a dozen times? And perhaps more important, why did the bishop want them to knock it off? It's easy to see why the bishop didn't want his charges engaging in performances scurrilous and unchaste. Why did he want them to stop singing the Magnificat? Well, the problem for the bishop and for most of us is not God lifting up the lowly. We think lifting up the lowly is great outreach, right? The problem is Mary's proclamation that God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and sent the rich away empty. That's not the way God is supposed to work. God is supposed to love everyone. And even if you think Jesus is here primarily for those in need, it still feels weird to say that Jesus is going to make life worse for some people. But that's exactly what Mary says. Not just that God doesn't give to people who aren't in need, but that God is actually pulling people in power down from their thrones. The Magnificat's a rather dangerous text if you start taking it seriously. It suggests that in the birth of Jesus, God intends to radically remake and reshape the world we live in. That God does not simply look at a world full of needless suffering and pointless violence and say, well, let's try to take the edge off it a bit. God is doing something totally new. Something entirely unconcerned with the rules and norms that we live our lives by. The problem is not the people who become kings themselves, per se. The problem is our impulse to put people on thrones in the lengths they go to stay there. The problem is the sin and injustice that allows some people to live lavishly while others go hungry. What Mary is talking about is revolutionary in the truest sense of the word, a complete and total upending of the ways of being that we consider divinely ordained or the way things have to be done. Now, St. Luke, it's important to remember this, is clear that this is good news. When the angel appears to the shepherds in Luke's Christmas story, they proclaim good news of great joy to all people. God's messenger is clear that this child, this Messiah, and this reordering that comes with him is good. But the good news doesn't sound like good news to everyone. Remember, in Luke's Christmas story, not everyone reacts to the birth of Jesus, to this reordering of the world, with rejoicing. The most obvious example is King Herod. Herod maintains his position at the top of the political hierarchy by coercion, specifically by treating kids as disposable objects and submitting them to acts of institutionalized violence. And if you maintain your position, your power, your privilege by exploiting other people, especially the most vulnerable in your society, Mary tells us, then God's act of reordering is not going to feel like good news to you. That's why those French subdeacons on the day when the old rules didn't apply, when hierarchies were flattened, on the day when they were given power sang Mary's song, because Mary's song is the battle hymn of the fight for recognition. When Mary envisions a new world free from the Herods that keep us in fear, we can envision a new world with her. We're really not used to thinking about Mary this way. I know I say this every Advent, so this is time number three. But think about the hymns we sing about Mary around Christmas. Then gentle Mary meekly bowed her head. Mary was that mother mild. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. If all you knew about Mary came from Christmas hymns, you would think her primary qualification for being the mother of God was being quiet. Now, thankfully, not all Christians have such reductive, insipid, shallow takes on Mary. The next time you're in a Catholic church, if they have a sculpture of Mary inside, take a close look at her feet will be a good chance she'll be depicted standing on the head of a snake, crushing its skull underfoot. Not exactly the meek and mild virgin. The snake, of course, is the symbol of sin, suffering, and all that draws us away from God in the creation story. The implication is that Mary literally and figuratively embodies a world in which sin does not have control over our relationships, our communities, and our lives. And what would that world look like? Well, it wouldn't just be a little bit better. People wouldn't be a little nicer. It wouldn't just be a little bit easier to get through the day. It would look like a world that was turned upside down. See, we're not used to thinking about her this way, but Mary is really something of a prophet. She has far more more in common with Amos and Jeremiah than shepherds or magi. Last Advent, we read together The Prophetic Imagination, which is a book by Walter Brueggemann. And here's how he describes the task of a prophet. He says, The task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. The most important word in that sentence is alternative. Different, new, Unexpected. That newness is what we pray for during the season of Advent. Maybe you've noticed our prayers of the day for Advent all begin the same way, not by addressing God by some title, holy, mighty, powerful, etc., etc., but with an action. Stir up. Asking God for movement, for a possibility, and for change. Whenever we tell ourselves that this is the way the world works whenever we tell ourselves this is the way things have to be done, whenever we tell people it has to be this way, Mary tells us to stir it up a bit. Mary invites us to imagine what you would do as an individual, a family, a community, maybe even a congregation, if you thought a new world was actually possible. If you thought the snakes of injustice had been crushed underfoot, then what would you do with your life? My hunch is you wouldn't just give a little more money to charity. You wouldn't just be a little nicer to people. You wouldn't just do another program. You'd rethink everything from the ground up, or in Mary's case, from the top down. See, it's easy for us to laugh at the bishop who tried to keep the subdeacons from singing the Magnificat more than five times. But the bishop actually had it right. The bishop got it. The bishop knew that if people started singing Mary's song, they might start asking how things got the way they are. And if they realized that the systems of sin that keep us away from God and one another aren't divinely ordained, but are actually human constructions, they might start asking if they couldn't do things a little bit differently. And that always makes the powerful, the kings, and yes, sometimes even the bishops a bit nervous. After all, if God is pulling down the mighty from their thrones, then why aren't you allowed to sit in the bishop's chair? See, Mary waits with us for God's presence, but she doesn't wait the way we so often do. Not by sitting on our hands, not by counting down days. No, Mary tells us God is about to do a new thing. So stir it up, ask questions, and no matter what the bishops, the kings, and the powerful say, Keep on singing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.